Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can set aside in freedom to dive deep into your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to focus on that so that that time isn't wasted, that we are not dragged away by thoughts of this or that or the coming week. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear your word and to live it out in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for the past wee while, as you know very well, we've been doing a series of topical sermons, but today we're going to go somewhere between a topic and our more normal practice of pulling a text to pieces. The text on the dissection block today is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, but like all of Scripture, it can only be properly understood when we read it along with what goes before and after. So, don't go right there. Please can you turn instead to the start of chapter 11 and hang on to it for a bit because I'm going to waffle for a while. Sorry, I mean I'm going to deliver some profound and edifying truths. Now, many of you know that I have my own little handyman business and this means that usually I travel all over town because my jobs are many and varied, but... For the past few months I've been working on one project in one place. And that means instead of grabbing a pie and eating it on the run, I've literally been chased in for Smoko at the regulation 10, 12, 30 and 3 o'clock times. It seems that Smoko is a very disciplined religion. The men that I share the donka with are not Christians and I must hasten to add that they are my friends and they are most definitely not bad men but scripture is not the usual topic and if it were so well I'm sorry to say the language would not be appropriate so it's a very challenging place for me to be as a Christian it's very tempting and very easy to fall into the same kinds of behaviours for so many reasons and very honestly I tell you if I told you that I hadn't slipped myself from time to time I'd I'd be a liar. Now it seems like they have a lot of fun there and that fun also seems to come along without the guilt and frustration I often feel when I blot my copybook with God yet again. It's seductive. Perhaps it would be a lot easier to walk away and just be like them, be like the rest of the world. I have to say though that although I've had these feelings and experiences that are dangerous to my faith, I also believe that this has been a very useful time. It's very easy for us to seek the comfort of other Christians' company for the bulk of our time and so we love to have Christian family, Christian friends, Christian TV and radio, Bible studies, prayer meetings and two services on Sunday because they all make us finer Christians. It's better and safer to stay away from the world in case it drags us in. But is it better and safer? Well, (laughs) yes and no. It's pretty complicated because when we consider the reality of what makes us a better Christian, there are two things going on for us. And one of them, of course, is that process of sanctification where we work together with the Holy Spirit to become more and more in our characters like Jesus. That work of sanctification is mostly an internal thing. 
It has to do with controlling and changing our thoughts and attitudes. But there is also an external part, an external job for us, because we are like the Jews. Like them, our job is to show all of humanity what a proper relationship with God looks like in real life every day, to be visible witnesses for God. But there's a problem here because too often sanctification and witness get carefully stored in two different boxes and we only take one out at a time for dusting and polishing purposes. However, they must not be handled in this way because they are connected and intertwined in so many ways. Provided that the action is from the heart, there is never a time when sanctification isn't connected to witness and witness is not connected to sanctification. But neither sanctification or witnesses gains anything from being kept shiny in a box. Real sanctification and witness is beaten and scarred by real life. And it is the more beautiful for it. True sanctification and witness can only take place in real life, warts and all. And so no matter how scary the world may be to live in, it is definitely where God wants us. Now that sounds all very nice and awesome when you hear it, but in the real world, beatings and cuts hurt. Sometimes they cripple, sometimes they kill. So why would we go there when there's a much nicer and safer alternative to spending all our time with people who are like us? Well, hopefully today's text will answer that question. So let's look at it now. But before I begin to read, I want to explain that we're going to have to skip through some bits Because if I read all of chapter 11 to give the necessary context, you'll all be asleep by the end of it. Even if I use my most expressive reading voice, weird facial expressions and wild arm movements. So, I'll read the first bit, some of the next bits, and then I'll read all of it as we move into chapter 12. Let's go then. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. 
By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail for me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the word of the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think the first thing to notice from this text is this clear link between faith and physical reality. Real things happen when God's people have faith. I think that's very interesting because the definition of faith that's contained in the first few verses points mostly to its intangible nature because it speaks of things hoped for, things not seen. We can't touch them. They're in the air somewhere. We might think that if we did not read on, that this is clearly not the case. That, uh, sorry, I've misread there. As we read on, we, we read this is clearly not the case. Those hopes and visions become substance and evidence when people act in faith. When we act in faith. And this is exactly why James says that faith without works is dead. So, Abel offered, Enoch was taken away, and Noah moved, Abraham obeyed, Sarah received, Isaac and Jacob made blessings, Joseph instructed, Moses kept the faith, Jericho's walls fell, fire was quenched, kingdoms subdued, righteousness worked, promises delivered, weaknesses were made strong, the dead were made to come to life, and so on, and so on. How? All by faith. So, what will you and I do in faith, I wonder? Is that what our sermon is about today? Well, yes, it's one of the lessons that we must act in faith and when we do, provided that we understand that all is subject to God's sovereign will, we can expect 
a real response. However, I don't believe this is the author's main aim here. The size of their argument is quite remarkable. I mean, the whole of chapter 11, it's, it's long, isn't it? So long that I, I couldn't reasonably read it all to you at one go. And so it's fair to say that we might expect that the goal here in Hebrews is an important one. At this point, I think it's helpful to have a look at the background to the book. References that are made in chapters 10 and 12 make it clear that the Hebrews being written to here are facing the possibility of intensified persecution and consequently some of them were thinking of just chucking it all in, giving up their faith. Well, it's not so far from where I began, is it? It's true that the cause is different, but the end is the same. Hard experiences for Christians in the real world will either make us stay away from it or they'll drag us back into it. And neither of those is what God wants from us. Remember what I said earlier about our job being a picture of what it's like to be in a proper relationship with God. Nobody in the normal world is going to see anything if we stay away from it. And nobody in the normal world is going to see anything if Christians are just like them, if we're normal too. We are called to live out our faith openly in the world, just as Jesus did. And so that brings us nicely to the start of chapter 12. In chapter 11 we've had a definition of the faith at the very beginning and then this long bit about the demonstration of faith. And it finishes with the observation that although this amazing stuff happened to so many people and in so many ways, there was still something missing. God had something bigger and better in store for those who lived in a future time. Well, what is that? Well, we'll find it next week, same time, same channel. Well, actually, we'll find it right now in chapter 12, which begins, Therefore. I hope that by now us pulpit jockeys have got you well enough trained to know that when we see that word, we are called to pay attention. And the author of Hebrews and I are together in this. Therefore, kindly sit up and listen, engage your ears, your mind and your heart. It turns out that this particular therefore here is the daddy of therefores in Greek. It's what's known as a triple compound word because it's made by jamming the words for consequently, therefore and then together. And it only gets used one other time in the whole of the New Testament. So it's a bit like saying, therefore, as opposed to a more normal, therefore. It's probably quite important then. So now we have two bits of information that really ought to make us think. Firstly, we've got this really long example of the effects of, of faith in chapter 11. And then here's this, this extra double strength version of the word therefore. What's going on? Well, before I explain, uh, there's a bit more to tell you. Like all of scripture, this section must be read in context or we will get the wrong information from it. And in this case, the context comes from chapter 11. Thus we understand that the witnesses that are spoken of here in 12.1 are not other humans here on earth watching us, something we might imagine if this verse was just given to us by itself on a card. They are in fact the faithful followers of God in history past. They are our ancestors in the faith. And we should also not misunderstand the word witnesses because it also gives us the impression that the job of this historical group is to stand around in heaven 
watching us to see what we're doing in a kind of judgmental way. What's Colin up to today? What's Bryce doing? Hmm. But that can't be right because only the Lord can stand in judgment since he is the only one who is truly righteous. No human can stand in judgment on us. So, what does witness mean here? Well, the Greek word used is martus, and it's actually the root of our modern word martyr. And uh, it's describing someone who has the information or knowledge of something and therefore is qualified to bring it to light or to confirm it. So these people here, what they're doing is not about watching, but testifying. And not just testifying by word alone, but by both word, I know because I've done it. If you think about it, we do still use the word witness in this way as part of our Christian vocabulary today. For example, we might say that we have witnessed to our neighbour. And we know that Christians understand that we aren't some kind of peeping Tom, but that we have merely told someone about what we know and have experienced through our relationship with Jesus. And this is just what Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all of those in that cloud that surround us are doing. They witness to us by their example, although they don't ever speak to us directly. The position of these witnesses is also interesting. The text says that they surround us. And that doesn't mean that they're they're there as some kind of a a posse to arrest us or stop us from running away. Dave, you are under arrest for delivering awful sermons. No. The word surround reminds me of a sphere. I, I believe this is meant as a perfectly complete demonstration in every direction you can think of. It's intended as an encouragement. It says to us that whatever you're struggling with now has been faced before and it's been beaten by faith in God. Look up, look down, look backwards, forwards, sideways. It doesn't matter. Is there anything, absolutely anything that these people tell us of a situation that the Lord can't help you with or handle? No, they've done it all. There's nothing at all that he can't help us with. He is sufficient for all our needs and he has proven it by these people. Now we can build up a bit of a a mental picture. There's us here on earth and and in heaven. Just for for a moment, you imagine you you can see this. There are those who have gone before us. So many, they are described as a cloud and, and because they're described as a cloud, that reminds us of their unity. And the cloud surrounds us on all sides. There are so many of them collectively that they personally know all of the difficulties and joys of life that are possible and they can personally testify to us by their example how their faith in God has helped them to overcome. We can read about them in scripture and we know that in many cases what they have gone through is worse by far than anything we have ever experienced. So what do they say? They testify to us that heaven is worth holding on for. You can do it, they cry. We are the eternal evidence of the truth of God's promises. 
They say that the Lord is good, that heaven will be yours if you persevere. And that in comparison to, to eternity in heaven, even the very worst things on earth will later be seen as merely light and momentary afflictions, as Paul puts it elsewhere. We also learn from them that there is no excuse not to run the race. We cannot go to the coach and say that the race is too long or the day is too hot or that there are much faster runners than us so we can't possibly win. And so please can we give up and go and lie down in the shade somewhere. The witnesses tell us that all these things can be overcome. They have proven that it is so. Endure. Persevere. They have finished their race and now all enjoy the fruit of the victory. Because this race is not a race with a single winner. All who finish this race of life, fast or slow, with Jesus as their Lord, are winners. There is a great reward for our efforts. So, where are we? We're at the starting line. Every muscle is tensed and ready to spring into action. But what will make us better and faster runners? Well, the first training tip follows from what we've just been discussing, the example of the Old Testament heroes. And it's useless if we don't know what it is. So, one of the best ways to develop endurance and encouragement is to get to know the godly men and women of the Old Testament who ran the race and won. So, dig into those books, those commentaries. Dig into the book, the Bible. If you look around, you will find that there are excellent studies on key characters like Abraham to help you along. And then, of course, our text today tells us right here four things to do. One, lay aside every weight. And as always, the Greek is helpful. When we read here that we ought to lay aside every weight, it doesn't mean just you know kind of put it down somewhere convenient where we could pick it up again. It means get rid of it. Be done with it once and for all. And what do we learn about the weight? What is that? Well, it's not specified here, but it's not hard to understand that running a race with any extra mass at all is a sure recipe for extra struggle. Naturally, the nature of the weight will be different for everyone, but we could summarize by saying that anything that irritates or diverts your attention or affects your enthusiasm for the life of a believer would be an excellent start. Get rid of those things. How serious should you get? Well, I read this. It seems that some competitors in ultramarathons, do you know what they are? You don't just run 40 k's, you run 400 k's. Well, they go as far as having their toenails permanently removed to eliminate a potential source of running discomfort. <laughs> a sports podiatrist told the New York Times that many ultras consider their toenails useless appendages, remnants of claws from evolutionary times. Apparently not everyone agrees. One commented, you know any sport has gone off the rails when you have to remove body parts to do it. <laughs> so... I shall be watching to see if any of you are walking carefully next Sunday. <laughs> Two, get rid of the snare of sin. The author of Hebrews has made a clever distinction here. 
The Greek term that was used for weight just now was commonly used as well for the excess bodily fat that athletes would train hard to get rid of before a race. So that kind of gives us the picture of something that we carry with us. Not necessarily sin, but it could still slow you down. Maybe something like an, an unhealthy obsession with the All Blacks. Here the picture is different. There is a sense of sin being something we pick up or encounter during the race. Maybe like a bramble bush that wraps itself around your legs and, and then catches on all the bits and pieces when we try to remove it. And all the while it draws blood with little pricks here and there. But if the problem were just to stay on our skin, that would maybe be tolerable. But the problem with sin is, although it might begin with an outside influence, it often becomes an inner resident, not merely visiting, but becoming an annoying permanent resident like your Aunt Mabel and her small dog. Hint. Do not then deliberately run through the bramble bushes. The berries may look delicious, but the thorns are sharp, and who knows? Bears like berries too. Better not encounter a bear in the bramble bushes. Three, know that you are in it for the long haul. Endure, persevere. What does that mean? Well, sometimes you might lose your way or become exhausted. You might think that you have failed completely and that you are out of the race. But get up and go again because even small steps in the right direction are a win. All of those who are born again must run. From the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, we are enrolled in the race. The new birth just gets us to the starting line, but it does not get us to the finish line. Unfortunately, many Christians are merely jogging. Some are walking slowly and well, some are having a bit of a lie down. Yet the biblical standard for holy living is a race, not a morning constitutional. The word race is the Greek agon, from which we get the word agony. A race is not a thing of passive luxury. It is demanding. It is sometimes grueling and agonizing. And it requires our utmost in self-discipline, determination and perseverance. If anyone ever tells you that the life of a Christian will all be roses, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be happy, you're going to be healthy, they are lying. It's not true. Fourthly, above all these things, look to Jesus. Why must we do this? <laughs> because we're Christians, dummy. Well, no. It is because he is the better thing, spoken of in verse 39 and 40 of chapter 11. 11. God having provided something better for us, I see a link between looking to Jesus and the call to endure. Endurance is not a quality that stands alone. Behold, I am enduring, Dave Sermon. No, it always relies on something else. Behold, I am enduring, Dave Sermon, because I know that there is a roast chicken in the oven ready for when I get home. As I reflect on this Christian, this, sorry, this picture of the Christian's life as a race, it occurs to me that somewhere along the line we've gotten it wrong because these days it's more common to talk about the walk of a believer. Like I've said, it's not a walk. 
We're not here to take our time admiring the sights and smelling the roses. It is a run, a testing run. I'll repeat what I just said. A race is not a thing of passive luxury, but it is demanding, sometimes grueling and agonizing and requires our utmost in self-discipline, determination and perseverance. If we were to attempt such a thing on our own with no clear motivation, I reckon we do well to last the first 100 metres. But we do have a very clear motivation. Jesus, we look to the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before me endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured more than any other man has ever done. He ran the most perfect of the difficult, most difficult of races perfectly, but he too had a motivation, the joy that was set before him, the joy of serving the Father, the joy of saving all of creation from sin. The joy of a race well run. Who is a better example? Who is a better motivation? Who is a better friend and Lord? As our friend, he runs alongside us every step of the way. As our risen Lord and God, he waits at the finish line with the victor's laurels. Maybe today you're tired. It's been a hard time and it feels like it would be so easy to give up. Maybe you see the fun that your worldly friends are having and it looks like a defection to their side might be the better choice. I say to you, don't give up. Get up because you're surrounded. That cloud of witnesses will be applauding. Jesus will be waiting. Run, run, run. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we face the possibility of a new year, it's a timely reminder of our call. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't forget it in the busyness of this Christmas and New Year season, that it wouldn't be like one of those New Year resolutions that the world makes and everybody laughs about because they know they won't last. And Lord, that it would become a constant and daily reminder of what you desire for us, that we run that race, that we too can join that cloud of witnesses and show the world that you are a great and glorious God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.